Tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, I've been invited to be a part of a, a roundtable discussion uh, being conducted by the Colson Center for Worldview. It's a scientific research um, institute that uh, that does that conducts studies on worldview and how worldviews grow and shrink over time, how worldviews develop and uh, impact and affect culture. And the reason they're coming here is because, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, that the Barna Research Group. Um, recently released their findings uh, for the year 2022. They uh, surveyed thousands and thousands of people from all over the United States uh, on what they call uh, uh, legacy evangelical belief system. We would call that just sort of fundamental Christian doctrine. Leg- uh, uh, they, they call it legacy evangelicals. We would call it biblical Christianity. Um, but, you know, it's questions like, do you believe in the inerrancy and authority of Scripture? Do you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus? Do you believe in the virgin birth? Things that all Christians should enthusiastically affirm. And they found that across the United States, about 4% of people uh, affirm those truths. That across the nation that we're raising our kids in right now, only about 4% of people can enthusiastically affirm what the Bible clearly teaches. And, uh, um, but they found that there's one part of the country that uh, affirms those truths at a rate more than five times higher than the national average, significantly more than any other place in this nation. And I would venture to say probably significantly more than almost any other place in the world. And that place is the Tri-Cities of East Tennessee. <laughs> Look at that. And so these, uh, the people conducting the study, they want to know why. <laughs> so they called. They thought, let's get together some experts and also Pastor Maddie. <laughs> we'll see if we can figure out why. I was talking to my wife the other day and I said, I don't know, I don't think that we're doing anything that there aren't a thousand other churches doing the same thing. We're teaching God's word, we're doing our best to live it, and we're lifting Jesus up. Uh, and it's, it's I, I have a feeling that I'm going to sit in this meeting and you know, hear guys talk about their marketing strategies and how they you know, have... Uh, have gotten a, a foothold into the culture and what they're doing to engage the community. And, uh, and I feel like the only reason I'm going to this thing is to make sure that nobody is able to turn uh, a sovereign dispensation of the kindness of God into a formula that other people might try to copy and paste in their own city. My hope is that these scientists will conclude their study with three simple words. And those words are, God is good. Why is God moving in the Tri-Cities of East Tennessee? Because God is good. We could never have prayed enough to deserve what the Lord is doing here. We could never have fasted enough to, to deserve what the Lord is doing here. I could, 
I'm, I'm trying my hardest, but I promise I'll never be able to preach good enough to deserve what God is doing in your life, in your family, and in your community. And so um, we have seen, since we have been here, we have seen God uh, on a much higher scale than we could possibly have orchestrated or uh, manipulated. We have seen God just pour out kindness and favor and blessing and generosity on this land in particular. And we're so grateful that he would call us to be able to be here you know, to receive the blessings and, and the kindness that he's pouring out on this land. We're so grateful that, I mean, so many of us in this room have relocated to be here. Uh, I think all of us in this room, in one way or another, we have felt the, the blessing of the Lord. If you've sold a house in the last couple years in the Tri-Cities, you've felt the blessing of the Lord. You know, it's like the, the way that God has been moving in this place is, is it's, uh, it's unlike anything I have ever seen or heard of before. And I, I just feel so privileged to have been able to um, to be here to, to see um, God initiate what is looking to outsiders like revival in this land. And, and, and yet, uh, as privileged as I feel, I also feel a, a, the burden of responsibility for what God is doing here. You know, when we moved here, uh, I couldn't tell you where Johnson City ranked in terms of uh, uh, educational quality, but I can tell you it wasn't great. Um, and we, just this last year, we were number two in the state of Tennessee. Johnson City's public school system was number two in the state of Tennessee. Um, we are, statistically speaking, the most Christian city in the most Christian nation on planet Earth. And so I, I can't help but think that, that to whom much is given, much is required. I can't help but think that Maybe we've got to do more than just pat ourselves on the back and talk to scientists and brag about our marketing strategies, right? I can't help but think that maybe that we should move beyond just standing in awe of the goodness of God and, and we ought to conduct ourselves like a city set on a hill. We ought to conduct ourselves like God has actually made us the tip of the spear, like like with the kindness he's poured out, he's also given us the responsibility to utilize that kindness for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. And this last week, I, I don't know about you, but I had a sense in my spirit as we were receiving what God was, was doing in our, our lives, and it seemed like such a deep work that he was doing in so many of you. I had the sense in my spirit that, uh, that on the other side of that, there was uh, things were gonna be different. That on the other side of what we experienced, what we received, as God was filling many with the Holy Spirit, as he was dealing once and for all with fear and with weakness in the lives of so many people in this community, I, I just couldn't help, I, I just couldn't shake the sense that things were going to change. And so I spent the whole week asking this question, what now? Where do we go from here? Like, what do I preach next? <laughs> you know, uh, What do we teach? It's like, I would love to have weeks like last week, every time we gather and we lay hands on people and we all cry, but, but I, we need to actually think about what, what does this look like? And, you know, Pastor Ian shared a little bit out of Acts chapter four, that powerful passage that, that you know, we, we, we hear the, the early church, they get together and they say, God, grant to us boldness so we can preach your word. 
and give us power so that signs and wonders can be done through the name of your servant, Jesus. And then the, the place where they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. And then right after that, it's like everybody loved each other and look after, looked after each other's needs. And then also Barnabas sold some land. And, uh, and I, I love that Luke thought this was important enough to write down. God thought this was important enough to inspire that this a building is shaken. A people are filled. They begin to proclaim the word of God with boldness. And also Barnabas sold some land, right? It's like people are being raised from the dead. Demons are being cast out. The sick are being healed. Like the world is being changed. The supernatural is happening all over the place. And Barnabas sold some land. <laughs> and I, I, I just, I can't help but think like that feels like it doesn't, fit, you know, like maybe my understanding of real estate is, uh, is too small. You know, I think uh, maybe I, I don't understand the supernatural nature of real estate, but, uh, but it's clearly to Luke and, and to the Lord, uh, an important part of the story. And, and so what I challenged the men on this morning, uh, was this, you know, w- w- I've been asking this question all week and I, I have this sense that maybe I'm uh, tapping into some of what the early church felt like, you know, that they, they're all there, they're there at Pentecost. They see the tongues of fire. They begin to speak in other tongues as the spirit gives them utterance. 3000, Peter stands up and preaches a message. 3000 people are brought into the kingdom. What? Shortly after that, Peter and John, they're walking into the temple to worship and they, uh, and, and they, they meet this man and Peter says, well, stand up in Jesus name, stand up and walk. And this man is, is healed. So many people gathered together with them in the temple that 5,000 more people are brought into the kingdom that day. And, uh, and then they're uh, taken aside. They're intimidated by the Sadducees and the rulers of the temple, the priests there, and, and, and they're threatened. And they're told, if you keep doing this, it's gonna cost you everything. And so, uh, and so they decide, what are we gonna do? We're gonna pray that God would give us boldness and power. And God fills them again with his Holy Spirit. It's this, it's this beautiful sort of progressive story that we see. And, uh, and I can't help but think that after having seen all this, after having borne witness to all this, they were filled with the Spirit in the upper room in Acts chapter two. They were filled with the Spirit again in Acts chapter four. And I, I can't help but think that at some point toward the end of that meeting that some of them started wondering, well, what now? I mean, what do we do? Do we just go to the grocery store after this? Do we just... We just go back home like nothing ever happened. The place was shaken. I was just filled with the Holy Spirit. I spoke the word of God with boldness. Something changed in me. Can I, could I possibly go back to life as, like normal? And, uh, and I love that the next portion of scripture in, in Acts chapter four is entirely normal. Somebody sold some land. There's two points that I want to make in this. First, uh, things don't have to be spectacular to be supernatural. We love the signs, wonders, and miracles. But sometimes it's selling property that is supernatural. It's so supernatural that God said, I want every generation forever to remember that Barnabas sold this land. He included it in his word. This is a critical part of the story as as God communicates it through his word. And 
and two, that what the Spirit produces is, is such a degree of kingdom consciousness that if you have to sell your rental property to fund the advancement of the gospel, then of course I'll do it. See, this is, when we, when we think about, well, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It's like, you may say, well, you speak in tongues if you were raised in a Pentecostal church, you know? Or you may say, well, you turn away from sin if you were raised in a Baptist church, uh, right? It might, it might depend on where in the country you were raised or what kind of church you were raised in or what kind of theological uh, background you have. But, but what we see is these people are filled with the Spirit. They're devoted to the Lord. And, and consequently, as a result of having been filled with the Holy Spirit, they speak the word boldly. They're devoted to the Lord, they're devoted to each other, and they're radically generous for the cause of Christ. Let me, all right, we're going to just go slow. Now, the multitude of those who, this is Acts 4, verse 32. Look at that. Great job. Uh, now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. This is right after, like this is the next verse. 31 says, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did any, I, can I, I love that. Can I tell you, it doesn't say that they were of one color, but they were of one heart and one soul. It doesn't say that they were of one uh, denominational background, but they were of one heart and one soul. Didn't say that they were even of one language or one nationality or one generation, one age group, one favorite music style, one body type. It, it says that they were of one heart and one soul. Um, those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor... Was there anyone among them who lacked? For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. Um, you know, there is a, a, a lot of um, people, myself included, uh, through, uh, often through the years, who have wrestled with the function or the purpose of money in the life of a Christian. You know, you have some people who are uh, afraid of it. Yeah. And they, um, you know, they were told growing up, money's the root of all evil, and so you, you should stay away from it. Make sure you don't have it, right? And, and, if, and they think that what biblical financial stewardship looks like is to, as soon as money touches your account, you get rid of it as fast as you can, and you give it to whoever, you know, is closest to you. The guy on the uh, you know, the street corner or whoever, like, I just got to get rid of this money so that people don't think I'm greedy. And then of course you have people, uh, over in, in the other ditch who are, uh, so concerned or so afraid that they may not have enough that they're, um, you know, they hear teachings on tithing and financial stewardship and they say, you know, no, thank you. That's not for me. I, I want to make sure that I, that my great, great grandkids can have the nicest pair of shoes you know, possible. And so I'm, I'm going to make sure that I keep all my money and I reinvest all my money and I hoard all of my money in storehouses because it's, 
I've got to make sure that, uh, that I don't lose it. You know, I'm, I'm afraid of what might happen. When, when we find security, see, the, the, the issue with both of these is that we're finding security outside of God's work. The issue with this poverty gospel, this idea that it's pious to be poor, is that we're finding security in the opinions of others. Like we want to be seen that, you know, my car's breaking down, my clothes don't fit. Uh, my kids' sh- shoes have holes in them, and, and that makes me feel like uh, righteous. That makes me feel accomplished. It makes me feel pious. And so uh, I find my security in the opinions of others. And, uh, uh, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have people that find their security in their um, uh, financial prowess. If you were here on Wednesday, you heard um, Robert and Don Nolan share their story, and uh, it was phenomenal, so inspiring and, and, and incredible and, and just an amazing couple. Yeah. You know, part of Robert's story is sharing about his dental practice. And, and at, at that time, he was worth, what, between three and four million dollars was his net worth. And he's crushing it, has a very successful dental practice and lost it all um, before having to spend 18 months in prison uh, for things that, he, that were out of his control um, and, and a situation where he was in the right. And, uh, and so there's a, uh, a revelation in that, that our security, if our security is in our finances, we are not secure. And so uh, let me say it like this. It, 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 I want all of you, I want to make sure that I'm clear about this. I want all of you to make as much money as you possibly can. Use your gifts and abilities to generate income. I can't tell you, I've said this before, I can't tell you that it's definitely God's will for you to be wealthy, but I can tell you it's definitely God's will for you to have the type of character that produces wealth. I'm going to say that again so so you can write it down. I can't tell you it's definitely God's will for you to be wealthy, but I can tell you it's definitely God's will for you to have the type of character that generates wealth. I, I can tell you it's God's will for you to work hard, to be punctual, to be honest, to be articulate to be considerate and kind to those around you. I can tell you that it's God's will for you to be excellent and full of integrity in everything that he, he gives you to do. And the truth is, if you do those things, you're going to prosper. That's the kind of character that generates wealth. If you make $5 million next year and you give away all $5 million of those dollars because you, you want to just, because you, you still want to stay in your mom's basement, friend, go ahead. Like it's, if that's what the Lord has called you to do, then, then go for it. But it's not okay for us to lazily sit around, you know, sleeping on a futon and eating Cheetos that our parents paid for and, and patting ourselves on the back because we're not a slave to money. This is probably a, a word for young men in the church. Poverty is not an accomplishment. Poverty is not a, a, an accomplishment. It's not a virtue. It's not. Generosity is a virtue. So generate income. Produce. And if, if the Lord calls you to give it all away, then give it all away. But as you're, so as you're, as you're giving increases, you know, as, you're, as you're, your income increases, as God continues to set you apart and, and prosper the work of your hands, I can't tell you that it's... Um, that you, you need to increase your standard of living but you do need to increase your standard of giving. 
And this is what we see in the early church. Barnabas sold some land. See, this, this may not be uh, a man who is lame from birth getting up. This may not be blind eyes opening or demons coming out. Uh, but this is God's supernatural this is the means by which God supernaturally advanced the kingdom is Barnabas and men like Barnabas being willing to say, listen, I, I may not be the best preacher, but I, what I do have is some land that I could sell. I, I may not be a, a worship leader, but what I do have is the ability to generate wealth. And, and, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use my talent. I want to bring my talent to the table. See, this question, in fact, the title of this message is what now? I'm saved, I'm, I'm given to Jesus. I believe, I've trusted him as my Lord and Savior. I've been filled with the Holy Spirit, but what now? It's interesting to me that right after in Acts chapter four, when the church is filled with the Holy Spirit, immediately after that, Luke starts writing about money. This is what they did with their money. Because if, listen, if, you're, if Jesus is the Lord of every part of your life except your money, Jesus is not the Lord of your life. And so uh, I'm trying to answer this question, what now? The truth is you have some people, it, it says, uh, uh, here, it, it, it says, uh, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So you have, you have one group who, who are preaching, they're teaching, and then you have another group who are selling land and making it possible for, for the group who's teaching to continue to do what God has called them to do. See, all of us, no matter what our skill set may be, no matter what our gift and calling might be, whatever position or opportunity the Lord may have given us, every one of us, we have the opportunity to move the needle and to advance the kingdom by way of excellence and integrity in the place God has planted us. Amen? Amen. And so I want to talk about four things that I see. We are in it. Are you, I hope you guys are comfortable. Um, I want to talk about four things I see coming on the heels of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Now, these are not four things that happen one after another. All four of these things happen simultaneously. In fact, in many ways, they are all dependent on one another. Those four things are honor, ownership, opposition, and opportunity. I feel really pastoral right now. <laughs> Honor doesn't start with an O, but it sounds like it could. Uh, <laughs> Honor, ownership, opposition, and opportunity. Honor, ownership, opposition, and opportunity. So I, I want to talk about honor first. This is what we were, where we, we, we just were. In, in Acts uh, 32, we see, uh, sorry, Acts 4, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of his things, uh, any of the things he possessed was his own. Uh, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who, had, uh, for all who were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, uh, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I want to go also to Acts chapter 5. Now, 
right after this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, on this. You hear the story of Ananias and Sapphira. If you're familiar with the story, uh, it produces fear in everyone. Ananias and Sapphira, they had land as well. They saw what Barnabas did and how that was such a big deal. And they said, well, we want to get some of that attention too. And so they, uh, they went and sold some land and they kept part of the money and then they they gave another part of the money and they told everybody, this is all we got for the land. They, they lied about their generosity. They lied about their degree of devotion. It wasn't actually that they kept some of the money. It was that they lied about having kept some of the money. And both of them are struck dead in their tracks before the Lord. And as you can imagine, uh, verse 11 of Acts chapter 5 says, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Uh, but then it says this. In verse 12, it says, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Everybody say, esteemed them highly. What's the first thing that comes on the heels of the infilling of the Holy Spirit? Say honor. honor. Yeah, the people esteemed them highly and believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude. Can I, you know, it's interesting that, that people would bring the sick out and lay them on beds and try to position them so that Peter's shadow could fall on them and they might be healed. Just as a side note, this is not my main point for today, but I asked the Lord years ago, you know, what is it? about Peter's shadow. I mean, why is that important? Why does that heal somebody? I mean, your word said that we should pray for people, that we could lay our hands on the sick and see them recover. But what about a shadow? And he said, uh, well, where your shadow falls all depends on where you stand in relation to the sun. Let me give it a minute for you to think about that. <laughs> Can I tell you the authority on your life depends fully on where you stand in relation to the sun. And, uh, and also, verse 16, also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So what, what happens is that these people are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're so devoted, deeply devoted to one another, that the word starts to get out. And, uh, and people say, well, well let's... We need a miracle. I need a miracle. My child needs a miracle. My friend needs a miracle. Let me, let me bring them. Let's go find these people. And so God sets them apart in a way that makes them desirable to, to the world. Now, this is interesting for me because just like Jesus, people are very excited about miracles and uh, very offended by truth. And so I, it's easy to look at this and say, well, God wants us to be popular and liked by everyone. And, uh, and I can tell you that God, God wants us to do things that, that are popular, like be generous and kind and loving, but that doesn't mean we're going to be loved by everyone. Okay. And so what we see here is that, I mean, the, the, these people are, uh, the, the people esteemed them highly. There's something about the early church filled with the Holy Spirit set apart, ordained by God to establish his eternal church that, uh, that makes them magnetic to the culture around them. People want to be close to them. Um, you know, this was a, a, an, an interesting f phenomenon for uh, 
uh, for me in, in my life and ministry. It's like um, I was, uh, as I think most of you know, I, I played music for a long time. And being the, the vocalist in a popular band, it, it sort of changes the way that people interact with you. Um, you know, it's a weird thing to meet someone who's been standing outside in the rain for three hours to get a picture with you, you know? And, and then uh, people would walk into the room and they'd see me standing there and they'd break down in tears. And it's like, gosh, this is a strange way to meet somebody, you know? <laughs> and, and I struggled with this for years. I felt, I felt guilty, like, like I was getting in the way, you know? It's like, I wish people would care this much about Jesus. Like, who would stand in the rain for three hours to get in the presence of God? Like, they'll do it for me? I'm not nearly that important, you know? And, uh, and then I realized, you know, honor can move things that, uh, that argument never could. And, uh, and so I began to say, God, thank you that you've given me honor in the life of, of these people. Thank you that these people see me and they, they, they honor, they, they esteem who I am. They may not know me as well as, you know, my wife does or, or other people, but they, they honor the, the fruit of my life. They see my character and, and they want to be near that. And so God, instead of, instead of lamenting that fact, let me leverage it. Let me use it for your glory. And so now I'll never forget at, at our, uh, at our very last concert ever, we played in December of 2016, 2,000 people in Dallas. And at the end of the concert, everybody kind of just hung around. Nobody wanted to leave. You know, it was our, our big farewell show. Many people had flown in to be a part of it. We played this show and I went up to the green room and I'm sitting there and, uh, and my oldest boy, Kai, he goes, hey buddy, uh, you're still my oldest son. He said, dad, look at all those people down there. And I said, yeah, look at them. And he said, they need to know about Jesus. Let's, let's go tell them. And I said, let's go, man. And so the two of us went down there and, and we just stood in line for like several hours. He ended up falling asleep on my shoulder. And uh, I'll never forget that, that evening. In fact, I've got a picture of this in my office. There was a, a young man there named Luke. And I said, Luke, do you, you know Jesus? Do you follow the Lord? And, and he's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm an agnostic. I don't really know if I believe in that stuff. And I said, well, would you like to give your life to Jesus tonight? And he was like, I don't know if I would say this for anybody else, but Maybe. And I said, well, uh, let me share the gospel with you. And, and so I, I just tell him the nuts and bolts of, of what it means to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And I said, would you like to do that? And he said, let's do it. I'm in. And I thought, like, this guy would never have listened. You know, he could have been a street evangelist or a world-famous pastor, but I was the vocalist of his favorite band. And, and because he honored me, it opened his heart to the gospel. You have to understand that when the Spirit empowers the work of your hands, it will generate honor for you. And what you do with that honor will determine whether the fruit of your hands is, uh, is fruit that lasts or fruit that withers in the fire. Uh, something that I've said to uh, uh, Derek Carr, a spiritual son of ours who plays in the, in the NFL, he, I've said to him that, you know, talent will get you influence, but character is what makes influence count. Talent will get you influence. Like the, 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 the gift, the calling of the Lord on your life, he's gonna, he's gonna bless the work. You're gonna be the, the best realtor the world's ever seen. You're gonna be the best painter the world's ever seen. You're gonna be an incredible parent. You're gonna be an incredible barber. Whatever it is that God gives you to do, you're, the, 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 uh, the carpentry work that you do is gonna be phenomenal. And people are gonna see this and marvel. It's gonna open doors for you. But character, who you are on the inside, not just what you do, like that's what's going to make that influence count. And uh, 
And so I, I want you to understand, when the Spirit fills a people, it will generate honor for those people. It's an honor for me to be a part of this study. There's only like 10 people in all of Johnson City that this, um, this organization has, has reached out to, and, and, and they want to ask, like, what is it you're doing that is affecting Johnson City so profoundly? And I'm going to have to shrug my shoulders and say, God is good, you know, but, uh, but I feel honored by that, you know? Um, and this is what it means. In, uh, in, in Revelation chapter four, when it talks about these, these uh, uh, elders who cast their crowns before the, the throne of, of Jesus, it's like, you may be anointed by the spirit to accomplish a task with excellence that sets you apart and earns you honor, a crown of honor. But the question we all have to answer is what are we gonna do with that crown when they place it on our head? I, you know, I would show up at, at a concert for 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 people with, with my band and I would recognize all of these people are crowning me and I've gotta decide what am I gonna do with the crown that they're putting on my head? And every night I would take it off of my head and say, Jesus, you deserve to be the center of attention. You deserve to be the one who's praised and honored and glorified. And I'm privileged to be able to have that opportunity still here. I, I recognize that the people of this church, I mean, you, you stand when I walk up on the stage, I, I recognize that you have honor for me. You wouldn't be here, I think, if, if you didn't. And I wanna make sure that I'm faithful to take that crown of honor off of my head and to continually lay it at the feet of Jesus. He's the one that deserves that honor. But we can't give him honor if it's not given to us. We have to be honorable people. We have to be people that, that the world can highly esteem. And when we are people that the world can highly esteem, then we have the opportunity to take that esteem off of us and to place it on Jesus. I want to talk about the second point here, ownership. Honor, ownership, opposition, and opportunity. Ownership. In Acts chapter 4, you guys have heard me talk about this already. You read that Barnabas sold some land. We see Barnabas take ownership of this movement. He may not have been the central voice. He may not have been a primary preacher, but he used what he had, which was land, to, to move the needle and, and to help advance this uh, the, the, the process of the establishment of the kingdom. And now I want to jump forward to Acts chapter 6. And uh, yeah, okay. In Acts chapter six, it says this. Now in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplying, starting in verse one of Acts six, when the number of disciples was multiplying, say multiplying. multiplying. Notice in Acts chapter two, it said, um, God added to the church daily those who were being saved. But here it says the number of disciples was multiplying. Now, You've got to know I'm not like great at math, <laughs> but someone smarter than me could tell you that if you want to grow numbers, multiplying is faster than adding every time. And so can I, can I tell you if, if we're going to advance what God is going to do here, you could just wait for me to go find people in the street and invite them into the kingdom uh, and, and you would celebrate. We'd celebrate that God is adding people into the family of God. Or we could all go find people in the street and invite them into the kingdom. And we could rejoice in the multiplication that he's bringing. Listen, this isn't, this isn't just about addition. This is about multiplication, okay? The number of disciples was multiplying. There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. This is, 
So, so the early church, immediately they start giving away food. So there's a, a, an abundant provision in the lives of the early church, so substantial that the rest of the world is feeling it. The early church wasn't poor. They had more than enough. This is why there was a daily distribution. Do you understand this? Barnabas wasn't broke. Barnabas had more than enough. That's why he could sell land and give the money away and still be okay. And so, uh, and so there's a, a daily distribution, but widows are being overlooked. And then it says in verse two, it says, then the 12 summoned the multitude of disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. I want you to hear this. We're talking about serving tables. And they say, who is going to, to serve the table? We want men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Those are the qualifications. It does not matter whether you are preaching on a stage in front of hundreds of thousands or if you're parking cars or serving tables. It is critical if we are going to be representatives of the kingdom at any level that we be people of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. It says this, it says, uh, find us men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Uh, And the saying, this is, maybe I'll just uh, take a second. You guys know I love you. I want to teach what the Bible says. Some parts are easier for me to teach than others. Like it's easy for me to stand up here and say, if you want to be free from fear, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Everybody likes that one. Um, but in, in Acts 6 verse 4, uh, it says this, uh, we, this is, these are the apostles, this is the spiritual leadership of the first generation church. We will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And, um, and here's my struggle is that uh, I feel guilty for not parking cars for not spending the week cleaning the church. Uh, I feel guilty for not like getting a, a job on the side to like generate income and help pay the bills for all my staff members and keep the lights on for the, the church building and pay the mortgage. It's easy for me, if, if I'm bearing my heart here, it's easy for me to, uh, to feel like uh, uh, worried that people are gonna think I'm not doing enough. But I keep coming back to Acts 6-4 and saying like, if this is what, Peter and and John and the rest of the disciples said, this is the right order. This is how God is going to build a church that's sustainable, is is that we're going to have to find young men who are full of the spirit uh, and and wisdom, people who have good reputations to say yes to the the various calls of God because one person or one small group of people can't meet all the needs that there are in the community. Um, I have to be willing to yield to God's design. Um, and so I, I say this because uh, it's, a, it's a struggle of, of mine internally. It's like I am concerned that, you know, the people of the church are going to think that I'm just off in some ivory tower somewhere, you know, sipping pina coladas and being fanned with a palm branch all week. <laughs> Listen, but the truth, the truth is uh, I am um, in prayer for your soul. I'm studying God's word 
And just as importantly, I'm making sure that while I'm serving this church, my family isn't falling apart. Like it would, it would be to your detriment if, uh, if I preached some killer messages and if I volunteered in more departments around the church and then my marriage fell apart as a result or my kids walked away from the faith as a result. And so um, I want you to know that it's a gift to this church that I take my wife on dates regularly and that I make time to go play in the yard with my little boys. Um, you're welcome because it is, it is in your best interest. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to be a preacher that lays my family down on the altar of my calling. If my calling, and this is a word, I think for some of you men who are, are highly driven, if my calling can't serve my family, my calling has to bend, not the other way around. I, I, I remember talking to a friend of mine in ministry. He led a ministry, he leads a ministry that you would know if I were to tell you the name of it. It's a ministry I, I'll bet most of the people in this room have heard of. And uh, he and I were chatting uh, about how I was leaving the evangelism circuit and, uh, and that I was going to plant a church in Johnson City, Tennessee, and he just couldn't get it. And I said, dude, I, I, I actually believe that um, by raising up generations of believers, I'm going to be able to multiply instead of add. And, I, and it's going to be more effective for me to advance the kingdom by pouring my heart and soul into the people God brings into my life than it is flying from one continent to another and one conference to another. And as I'm saying this, he's saying, well, that's nice for you. I, I just, I, I don't get it. And his wife is standing right next to him with tears in her eyes, elbowing him in the arm saying, do you hear that? Do you hear that? Do you hear that? And he, and he acknowledged her and then said to me, I have a calling on my life. She knew that when she married me. And I said, fair enough. Um, the last time I heard from him, uh, he and his wife had just gotten divorced and she had moved in with her girlfriend. So things did not go good um, for him. Listen, if you are a man who's highly driven and highly productive, congratulations. Get familiar with the word no. Do your family a favor. Get familiar with the word no. Um, find ways to be more productive with less output. I'm not saying like, I'm not saying be broke so that you can live with your wife in a cardboard box. Like, I'm, I'm saying find ways to be more productive with less output. In fact, you have to. For the sake of your marriage, for the sake of the next generation, for the sake of the kingdom God's called us to build that is so much bigger than our own personal brand or empire. I'm giving you a glimpse into my heart this morning. The saying pleased the whole multitude, verse 5 says. The saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip... Everybody say Philip. We're going to talk about him more. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. When they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I love that this is the product of faithful waiters. Faithful, seven, seven people called to leadership. Philip among them, Stephen among them, who said, yeah, we'll serve food to widows. Like that was the calling. They're not preaching sermons to multitudes. They're serving sandwiches to single moms. Yeah. 
Are you, is anybody following? All right. They're, they're serving lunch to single moms. Then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. A great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Listen, just because you don't have pastor, apostle, bishop, or reverend before your name doesn't mean that God can't anoint the work of your hands for the advancement of the kingdom. I, I pray that God would raise up prophetic servers in this house that would say, I'm walking into my uh, workplace in the spirit of Philip. Like, let God send revival through the service of my hands. Like, you may be a waiter or a waitress, but revival came through waiters and waitresses in Acts chapter, chapter 6, Right? So our first point is honor. Our second point is ownership. What we see in the life of Barnabas, what we see in the life of Stephen and Philip and these others is ownership. They don't just leave the work of the kingdom to the apostles. They say, no, 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 give it to me too. I want to be a part of the story. I want to have a hand in what God is doing. Now, I may not hold their office, but I can, I can be of, of one heart in one spirit with them. I can share the same dream, the same desire, the same passion for the, the gospel of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed through my life. And so you, you see these people saying yes and taking ownership of the, the burden of the advancement of the kingdom. So we see the early church, what the, uh, what the spirit produced in them was honor, ownership, and number three, opposition. Now this one uh, is a favorite of mine. <laughs> Maybe not a favorite, it's an old friend. Me and opposition have a, a long history with each other. I, I want to be really careful to say this. Um, I uh, reject the doctrine that has crept into the church that you can gauge uh, your success by the amount of demonic activity you see around you. I simply refuse to let the devil be my compass. It's, I know you've heard something like this, you know, well, the devil's really coming against us, so we must be doing something right. It's like, here's the, here's the, the thing. I was talking about this with Miss Candace earlier this week. Uh, Jesus calmed the storm. Remember the disciples? He went up on the mountain and uh, sent them uh, across to the other side. And, and when they got there, the wind uh, was uh, vigorous. It was powerful. And it's tossing the boat to and fro. And then Jesus came to them walking on the water, you know, and Peter walks to him. He begins to sink. And then Jesus gets in the boat and immediately the storm ceases. Another time Jesus speaks to the storm and tells it, peace, be still. Uh, and, uh, and so you see Jesus calming these tumultuous seas, uh, but there is a sea around the throne of God. Uh, the Bible describes it as a sea of glass. If you've ever seen water that reflects the sky like glass, I tell you what that water does not have in it, waves. There's no chaos. There's no tumult. There's no uh, violence or... Um, uh, aggression, there's no contrary wind near the throne of God. The waters closest to him are perfectly still. And so I say this to say to you, as you get closer to the Lord, don't get closer to the Lord expecting that means the devil's going to try harder against you. 
I, what he does or doesn't do is irrelevant to me. What he does or doesn't do is irrelevant to me. My eyes are fixed on Yahweh, my father in heaven. I'm going to do what I see my father doing, not the opposite of what I see my enemy doing. I, as a son, I'm going to do what I see my father doing, not the opposite of what I see my enemy doing. And so we're going to fix our eyes on our father, his smile. That's going to be our indicator that we're getting closer to the mark, right? Not the rage of the devil. However, opposition, it seems, is unavoidable if we're going to live this life that, he's, that Yahweh's called us to. And, uh, and I, I wouldn't, um, I'm not concerned about it. Uh, I'm not concerned about what's between me and the goal. I'm concerned about the goal. I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus, and I'm not worried about the waves that are between me and him, right? I'm going to keep walking toward him. And so... Uh, we see this opposition in Acts chapter five, uh, when the apostles are imprisoned, uh, and then they're freed and then they're imprisoned again, both in, in Acts chapter five. And then in, uh, in Acts chapter seven, uh, Stephen, who you remember is on this list of servers uh, that were called in Acts chapter six, Stephen is put on trial where he just lets them have it. If you want to get fired up, read Acts chapter seven. And read what Stephen said when he was on trial. He had no intention of getting himself off. Uh, he wasn't trying to get out of trouble. Stephen was preaching the truth with the platform that they gave him. And it cost him his life. He was, he was the first martyr in Acts chapter 7. He was killed for his uh, unwavering yes, his stubborn yes to Jesus. And, uh, and then in, uh, in Acts chapter, uh, chapter 8, it says, Saul, uh, starting in, in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, um, it says Saul, uh, who would later become Paul, was consenting to Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. There's two points that I want to make from these first three verses. I'm covering so much ground. Uh, let me go to, to Acts 8.1. It says this. Uh, Saul was consenting to, to his, that's Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. I want to make sure that you catch this. In Acts chapter 2, uh, sorry, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Do you remember this? I just talked about it a few weeks ago. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you will become witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, so Jesus tells them, I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And then you'll bear witness to me in these specific places, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And what happens when opposition comes? At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and then they were scattered all throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. What happens is that this great opposition only serves to further advance the fulfillment of the prophecy Jesus had given in Acts chapter 1 and to advance the kingdom toward the ends of the earth. This is good news, that even the enemy's best efforts to destroy us can only further advance our cause. It's irrelevant what he's doing. Fix your eyes on Jesus. 
It's irrelevant what the enemy's doing. Fix your eyes on Jesus. This is good news. This is good news, isn't it? Are you guys fired up? All right. And, uh, uh, and then I want to go, let's, let's go forward to, to verse uh, two. It says that devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Verse three, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. I love that, this per- that the, the primary mechanism by which this persecution that is advancing the gospel is, is, uh, uh, is being um, uh, ordained or, or carried out by is, uh, is the man that would ultimately be the Apostle Paul. Like there are some people who are in churches like Corinth or Ephesus that Paul helped oversee uh, who never would have ended up in Corinth or Ephesus if Paul hadn't persecuted the Christians in and around Jerusalem to begin with. And I, I love this idea that, that Paul before he ever wanted to, was serving God. (laughs) Like I can look back on my life and think about the times that I tried to destroy myself and God's hand was so clearly evident on me that all I could do was move myself closer and closer and closer to destiny with God. The times that I was in wickedness and sin. See, here's here's the the issue. Um, Not even the demons in hell can stop serving God. The uh, The only difference is that they don't want to. Right, the, 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 you're going to always give God glory and honor and advance his purposes, no matter what you do. The question is, is your heart going to be joyful over that fact or resentful over that fact? And so this is what we see in the life of Paul. I love that God, his hand is just so clearly on uh, Saul that uh, prior to his conversion, prior to his commitment to the, to the service of the Lord, he's still advancing the kingdom, whether he likes it or not. Good news. But what we see is uh, honor and ownership and opposition. It is, a, uh, it is a, an unavoidable reality that we as kingdom men and women will face opposition. The Bible says all who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Not might, but, but will, shall. It is unavoidable. For those of us that walk in the righteous call of a holy God, that we will suffer persecution in, in one sense or another. Um, you know, it's been uh, astonishing recently talking with people um, in this church that have been, and I don't know if Benjamin is in here, but uh, there's a, I talked to, I guess he's not, talked to the young man in this church who's from uh, Iran. He uh, recently got married to a girl who's from Virginia, but he, part of his story is that he was, um, arrested for his faith. Um, he became a Christian. He brought his mom to church. And after going to church for a couple months, the police found out about it. And they broke in during a service. And they took all the men and all the women to a prison cell with no windows in a room so tight that they couldn't lay down. They, they had to sit with their backs against the wall to sleep. Uh, and they kept them imprisoned in this room with no windows for what he would guess was about a month. But they don't know how many days or weeks um, had actually gone by. And, uh, and he, uh, only, he only escaped prison because the, uh, because the, uh, the, the government, uh, posted, they published in the newspaper his, his, the date of his execution. He was a well-known athlete in Iran. He was part of their national volleyball team. And, uh, and so the, uh, the government posted, hey, come down and see this execution. He, he won't tell us who his pastor is or where the church was located or, or where the, the 
um, churches, the pastor's home is located. And so um, come and join us and uh, uh, see him die for his faith. Uh, and someone who was a fan of his, who knew about him as a, a volleyball player, an athlete, uh, paid for him to fly out of Iran the week before he, I mean, they bribed prison guards to get him out of prison. Then they bribed airline officials to get him on a plane to get him out of the country so that he wouldn't be executed for his faith. And he's here in our church. Um, and, uh, and I want you to understand, like, having to have an awkward conversation with your liberal aunt <laughs> doesn't count as persecution, you know? <laughs> we need to raise... We need to raise the stakes. Uh, prepare your heart for whatever will come. I, I enjoy the fact that we can be relatively comfortable while proclaiming the kingdom, but I um, will continually glorify God if, if days come during my lifetime that, that that comfort is removed and replaced with suffering. We, we have to say yes, no matter what the cost. Our yes to God cannot be dependent on the comfort or convenience of it. We've got to say yes, because just as honor and ownership are inevitable parts of a life um, in feel, uh, uh, a life empowered and, and, and informed by the presence of the Holy Spirit, so also is uh, opposition. Yeah. But the fourth point, and this is the last one I'm going to go to today. I'm doing okay on time. Caleb, how am I doing, buddy? I'm doing it long, he said. Great. <laughs> Thanks for that. I tried to tell you. <laughs> Honor, ownership, it's good. If you ever want to grow in humility, just have kids. <laughs> uh, honor, ownership, opposition. And the fourth is this, opportunity. Honor, ownership, opposition, and opportunity. Do you guys remember Philip, the waiter? Acts uh, chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. I love that there's a very fine line between waiter and revivalist in God's heart. Philip is introduced to us as a young man who has a good reputation, who's filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. The next time we see him, he's leading a city-wide revival. There was great joy in that city. Demons are coming out of people. The sick are being healed. The multitudes with one accord heeded the words being spoken by him. They, they, saw, they, they heard what he, he preached and they saw the miracles which he did. Unclean spirits came out of those who were possessed. The paralyzed and lame were healed and there was great joy in that city. Philip is leading a city-wide revival. Can I tell you what, what our yes looks like cannot be dependent on the size of our platform. If, if you think that you're gonna be faithful with, uh, with a fortune, as a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, but you won't even be faithful to take care of your car right now, I promise. 
you won't. If you think, if you think that you're going to be, this is a good one. Uh, if you think that you're going to be faithful with a wife and kids, but you won't even take care of your own teeth. You won't. This is just dad talk. I'm telling you, listen, this is, I should explain this. <laughs> Here's the thing. I'm not, everybody, everybody's everything tends from order to chaos. It's the law of entropy. It's one of the laws of thermodynamics. Rich has a PhD in chemistry. He's fired up about that. And so you should know everybody's teeth want to rot out of their heads. Everybody's bodies want to fall apart, right? Um, can I tell you of all the old, old people that I've known who are at the end of their life, a recurring theme that they have told me is if you want to live a long and happy life, take care of your teeth and your feet. So this is not a prophetic word. This is just dad advice. If your teeth aren't healthy, get them healthy. Pay what you need to pay. Schedule what you need to schedule. Go to a dentist or an orthodontist. Like, get them fixed. Thank me in 40 years. <laughs> Philip says yes to God's call to serve lunch to widows. And the next time we see him, he's leading a citywide revival in Samaria. He's leading a citywide revival in Samaria. Now, let's catch up with Philip again in Acts, later in Acts chapter 8, in verse 26, the context. Philip is the man. He's the God's man of power for the hour in Samaria. He's being used to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to change the world. The, the multitude with one accord heeded the words spoken by Philip. This is, this is what every evangelist friend of mine dreams of. I want to see a whole city burning on fire for Jesus. Philip's right in the middle of it. He's being used by God. Now the angel of the Lord, Acts 8, 26. Now the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, arise and go toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. And I love that Luke goes out of his way to explain there's nothing there. <laughs> this is desert. I think that's really important. See, because here's, here's the call. Philip is crushing it in Samaria. If Philip had you know, any ambition to try to build his brand or his empire, what he would do is he would hire a staff and he'd build a, a headquarter, you know, a global headquarters, and he'd start get a graphic designer and get a logo made, you know, and build a website and social media presence, and he'd hire some interns, and, and everything would be good. Like, he would make this something that he could uh, manufacture, reproduce, and multiply over the, the years. But Philip, he's right in the middle of this outpouring of God's power and glory in Samaria. And then the angel of the Lord spoke to him and said, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And Luke says, You should know this is desert. And so God comes to Philip and says, I know that it seems like what you're doing here is so important, but I have something for you. And what I want you to do is to walk alone down an empty road. And I, 
it would be something, to, to make this really um, practical for you, it would be something like this. I know that your business is thriving and your ministry is growing and you're reaching the world, but I want you to move to Johnson City, Tennessee. <laughs> Right. It's like, this is desert. <laughs> See, and, and, uh, and this is, I think, uh, a lesson, the fact that, that he went. So he arose. The, the next verse, 27 says, so he arose and went. I, I, I can't imagine the kind of internal conflict Philip must have felt. Like, God, don't you want me to be productive? No, I want you to be obedient. God, don't you want to change the world? Son, I want to change the world more than you could possibly imagine. And the best way you can serve my mission is to walk alone down an empty road. Guys, I want you to understand that God's calling on your life doesn't always look like bigger and better. God's call on your life doesn't always look like standing up and speaking out. Sometimes God's call in your life looks like sitting down and shutting up. Sometimes God's call in your life looks like walking away from the platform and away from the spotlight and walking alone down a desert road. Because God's not looking for people who are ambitious. He's looking for people who are obedient. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Can I, can I ask you this question? Here's a quick Bible quiz. Why did this eunuch come to Jerusalem? Good job. Yeah, that's good. Well, four of you were paying attention. Thank you so much. Uh, Everybody else is like seeing if they can get DoorDash delivered to church. Um, <laughs> he came to Jerusalem to worship. You know, history tells us that this man returned back to Ethiopia and that still to this day, there's an Ethiopian Orthodox Christian church that can, that can track the, the roots of, of the establishment of their denomination to this man. Still today, 2,000 years later, the gospel this man carried back to Ethiopia is still bearing fruit today. When God is looking for the person he's going to use to change the world, he's not looking for the person who's most well-informed because Lord knows it wasn't him. He's looking for the person who has a heart to worship. And so he found it in this man. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning and sitting in his chariot. He's reading Isaiah the prophet. And then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. I wish that people would uh, believe that in the church in 2023. How can I unless someone guides me? Instead of like, well, I feel like it probably means... I mean, Jesus said, don't judge, so <laughs> love is love. Uh, the, place, the place in the scriptures where he read, the place in the scriptures where he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. 
That's from Isaiah chapter 53. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at the scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. When Philip left Samaria, where was he going? Great job, guys. The gold star. The angel of the Lord came to Philip and said, go south on the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. You remember that? On that road, he meets the eunuch. He leads him to Christ. He baptizes him. And then the spirit takes him away to Azotus. And then he goes from Azotus to Caesarea. And never at any point does he end up in Gaza. That's because sometimes God will send you in a direction of a thing that you were never actually supposed to uh, lay hold of. Here's, here's what I mean. Um, I, uh, I moved to, to Mobile. My family and I, we moved to Mobile um, because there was a, a, a guy that we'd admired and, and followed for years who... Um, told us he was going to move to Mobile and that he wanted to spend time with us and get close to us and, and disciple us. And so we said, we're going, to, we're going to do that. So we got out of our lease early in the city we were living. We got a U-Haul. We moved all the way across the state of Alabama. And we got to Mobile, Alabama. And about a month later, that guy called and said, actually, never mind. I'm not moving to Mobile. Good luck. And if you have heard me talk at all about my spiritual father, I'm so grateful I'm so grateful that God sent me to Mobile aiming at one thing, knowing that on the way I would find what I was supposed to discover all along. Uh, some of you moved to Johnson City because you, uh, you like the weather and the taxes, right? Some of you ended up in this area because you got a new job or because you like the mountains. And, um, and then you found along the way something that you weren't looking for, but that God had put you on a collision course with all along. Because when we're living a life empowered, inspired, and instructed by the Spirit, we can with great confidence know that we will find honor, ownership, opposition, and lastly, opportunity. I may talk a little bit more. I I left out 20 verses of the 40 that I was going to teach on in Acts chapter 8 today. Um, you're welcome. Uh, but I'm going to do it. I think we'll, we may continue on this road um, together next week. But um, we're going to find opportunity when the Spirit leads us. And guys, I want you to be aware, just like Philip was. Like God sent Philip toward Gaza. And if Philip was anything like me, he would have gotten halfway down that road and seen a chariot on the side of the road and said, I don't have time. I've got a call. God sent me toward Gaza. 
What I'm doing is very important. You know, God called me away from this revival in Samaria. I don't have time for one guy sitting in a chariot on the side of the road. I've got places to go and things to do for the kingdom, important things. Right? How many of us are so fixated on what we assume is God's end goal for our life that we're not willing to be interrupted for the destiny that God has placed in front of us along the way? You need to know. Listen, I, I, I know that you are very important and that you're God's best weapon to bring revival to this generation. But I have to tell you, this week, you're gonna walk past opportunity after opportunity after opportunity if you don't have eyes empowered and enlightened by the Spirit to see what God is bringing across your path. And so my prayer for you is that you, like Philip, would be sensitive to the interruption of the Holy Spirit, that you might be on, on a road in a particular direction, but that you would hear, as, as God says, actually, what I have for you is right there. It may seem like it's out of the way. It may seem like a distraction, but be willing to be interrupted because we'll find that in the interruption is where we discover destiny. Amen? So this week, pay attention to the interruptions in life. You should know in my entire life, I have never gotten in a car accident with someone I didn't then pray for. Like, sorry, I rear-ended you. God must have a word for your life. (laughs) (laughs) Usually it's not my fault, but like if somebody runs into me, I'm like, listen, of all the people you could have run into, if you're going to run into me, it must be because God loves you and he, he has something to bless you with today. Like let's, let's not miss those opportunities. I, we had a time, I don't know, a couple years ago that I was driving into the office for a staff meeting and a girl ran into the back of my truck and she was like, we have to exchange information. I said, well, let's drive over here. We'll go in. And so she came into the office and ended up giving her life to Christ in the office that, that morning. Um, guys, let's, let's embrace these interruptions. Let's allow the opportunities uh, that God brings us to not, go, uh, to not go by without us taking full advantage of them. And let's recognize that what it means to live a, a life inspired, empowered, and instructed by the Holy Spirit is to be someone that, that receives honor, ownership, opposition, and opportunity in every opportunity we're given. Amen. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. I thank you for for your spirit, um, both of which are are alive and active in us today, Lord. We thank you for um, instructing us, empowering us, informing us, guiding and directing us into what is true and right and good. Lord, we commit um, all our actions to you. We ask you that you would use our skills, use our abilities, use our talents and opportunities to advance your kingdom and to glorify your name. God, I pray over every person under the sound of my voice that you would that you would touch their heart, that you would awaken their mind, um, that you would bless their families, that you would use the the work of their hands, God, to uh, advance your kingdom and to glorify your son. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done here at the Altar Fellowship, and we thank you, God, that you are just getting started. We bless you. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thank you so, so much. Love you very much. We'll see you Wednesday night at 6.30. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to this service from the Altar Fellowship. We pray that you are impacted powerfully by this message. If you have been personally affected by our ministry and you would like to partner with the Altar as we work to establish the Kingdom of Heaven, please visit our website at www.thealtar.org.